Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Some 16 million Americans, or about 1 in 20 adults, own at least one AR-15, making it the best-selling rifle in the U.S. Its design also makes it among the most lethal when used to kill. Ten of the 17 deadliest mass shootings here in the last decade have involved AR-15s, according to the Washington Post. We look at why the AR-15, originally meant for military combat, has risen to mass market dominance over the last two decades while avoiding congressional scrutiny. Do you own one? Or are you a gun owner who chooses not to? Tell us why after this news. I'm Nina Kim. Welcome to Forum. A new Washington Post investigative series called American Icon takes a close look at the AR-15, how it's become America's best-selling rifle, how it's also been used in the deadliest mass shootings of the last decade, and how it divides a nation. Tragically, the same day the Post series published on March 27th, three adults and three children were killed at a school in Nashville. The shooter was armed with two AR-style rifles. Joining me now is the editor of the Washington Post series, Pete, Peter Walston. And before we begin, a warning to listeners that today's show may have graphic descriptions that you find disturbing or unsuitable for young children. Peter Walston, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me on. I I did wonder immediately how you reacted to the fact that just a few hours after your series on the AR-15 published that there was a mass shooting involving it. How did you take in that news? Well, um, it was about five hours. Our, our We published our entire series um, on a Monday morning um, at about 6 a.m. Eastern time. And, um, and about five hours later, um, that, that shooting occurred in Nashville. And you know, it was, um, it's always shocking and upsetting when these, um, when these happen. And, and unfortunately, they happen with regularity. And so, 
um, while the timing was um, certainly notable, um, it, it, it maybe wasn't surprising that at some point soon after we published the series that a, that another mass shooting would occur involving uh, the, the, this sort of a weapon. And it wasn't surprising because of just its popularity and other things that you learned about it? Yeah, I mean, one of the major um, takeaways for us from from working on the series is that um, the country has just become very heavily saturated with with AR-15s and, and AR-15 style um, weapons, and uh, they're they've become extremely popular, especially over the last couple of decades. Uh, they're very uh, relatively inexpensive and very easy to get. And they have been in a lot, uh, you know, and as, as you said, uh, many of the um, mass killings that have occurred um, in recent years have involved these sorts of weapons. You, you do tackle why they've become so popular, who's most likely to own and use them and so on. But there is one article in particular that I want to ask you about first, and that is a piece about what the gun does to the human body. You do this through animated 3D images. Why did you want to show this? Well, um, we felt that this was... Um, an especially important um, question to answer, which is, um, you know, how do we capture the the devastation that is caused when these weapons are used uh, to target people? Um, And um, often in tragedies that occur, um, these mass killings, the, you know, there's no photos really that are uh, made public. Uh, News organizations tend not to publish them. Um, Oftentimes, um, you know, the, the autopsy photos aren't published. They're very, not, not only are they gruesome, but what they, uh, but what happens is bodies are really destroyed um, by um, w- when they're hit with bullets fired by, um, by an AR-15. And, uh, and so we felt that this was important to capture. It's different. You know, the vast majority of uh, of gun deaths um, are the result uh, are involved handguns, not AR-15s. But these tragedies are are so devastating and and they're so um, damaging that uh, that we did feel that it was important to find a way within our standards um, to show the damage in a way that would not be that would be moving to uh, to readers, but not but but would not do it in a way that would make them want to turn away. We wanted people to understand it, and we felt that this was the way to do that. Yeah, the the piece is called The Blast Effect, and and I guess you touch on this, but the mechanics of the AR-15 create a kind of blast effect that is much more severe, say, than one that may be caused by a more typical handgun. Right. Um, some of the doctors um, and trauma surgeons uh, that, that we spoke to used this phrase, the blast effect, because um, the, the, the bullets are not uh, necessarily l- large per se, but, uh, but they enter the body at such a high velocity um, that when they enter, when they penetrate, they sort of tumble around and they create a shock wave that emanates out from the, you know, from the path it creates and often, you know, an entrance wound and an exit wound, and then everything in between is affected. And as the doctors described to us, it can really pulverize bones and organs and cause almost an, an explosion from within. You also wanted to um, show the speed with which it can 
wreak havoc, this particular gun, there, there's a point in that piece where you measure the length of time that readers have spent on the article and you compare it to the four minutes it took for a shooter to kill eight people and injure seven at the Indianapolis FedEx warehouse. In doing that, I felt like you were really trying to use tools to resensitize us in some way, as if you feel that we've become desensitized to it, Peter Walston? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I can't speak for other people, you know, but it but it is the case that when these tragedies occur, so much of the coverage, um, we, you know, we are left to describe what happened in in words and um, and, and words that are typically used don't don't necessarily do justice to um, to, to what happened in those moments and and to the impact on the human body. But but in addition to the velocity of the of the bullet uh, that I was describing previously, it what also it, it, a really important factor here is that because the, um, the because of the mechanics of the weapon, because it is a semi-automatic um, weapon, it, it it's very easy. The trigger is very easy to use, and these bullets can come at rapid succession. You know, sometimes um, the, the shooters might have a a thirty round uh, magazine or one hundred round magazine, and so they can. They can fire these uh, these rounds in very quick succession, and that leads to a lot of people involved in these. Uh, a lot of victims get um, get shot multiple times. So a single bullet can devastate, but multiple bullets is just even more so. I want to invite listeners to join the conversation, and Peter Walston is here just until the break. So if you have a question or comment, please feel free to post it now. Tell us if you are a gun owner who has an AR-15. They have been illegal in California since January of this year uh, when SB 1327 went into effect. But of course, people could have them before that, and, and many do. And perhaps you're a gun owner who doesn't want one. You can tell us why as well. Or if you have thoughts about what you're learning about the AR-15 that's new to you, or thoughts about its popularity, you can post them at KQED Forum on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. You can email forum at kqed.org. And you can call us at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. Justin writes, I'm a longtime liberal listener who owns an AR-15 for self-defense. While I understand the political and media focus on the horrific mass shooting events, the AR-15 is used in far fewer homicides than portrayed. These so-called assault weapons are functionally no more dangerous than any other semi-automatic magazine-fed rifle. All firearms are dangerous. While I absolutely support data-supported efforts to reduce gun homicides, targeting the AR-15 is misguided and has become a political wedge issue rather than a sound policy. I imagine, Peter, that that's something you've heard a lot. Anyway, let me just give you first an opportunity if you want to just respond to, to Justin's points here. Oh, well, J Justin raises a lot of really excellent points, actually, and, and, um, I, and I would recommend uh, that listeners um, look at the full series because um, certainly we've been talking about um, the blast effect and, and that's an important component. But we also um, did a survey of AR-15 owners um, as part of the series because we felt it was extremely important to 
explain why um, the weapon is so popular. And we did find, in fact, just as Justin says, that self-defense was an incredibly popular reason for why people own these weapons. And by the way, we found that um, about one in 20 Americans own at least one AR-15. That's about 16 million people. Um, right. Obviously, it's a tiny, tiny fraction of people who become mass killers. There are millions of people, law-abiding citizens uh, who own AR-15s and do so for perfectly legal and legitimate reasons. And it was fascinating to learn about, um, about why people own them and, and um, including self-defense, but also target shooting uh, and other forms of recreation. And some people collect them and, and some people just feel it's a way to exercise what they view as their Second Amendment rights. What are you hoping that people walk away with it uh in terms of if they do read the whole series. You do call it American Icon, which is also just a really interesting choice, I think. Yeah, I, I think um, I, we hope that people will learn about not only the weapon itself, um, but the impact on the country um, and what it tells us about the about the country. You know, we um, it, it has become, in addition to an extremely popular weapon, it really dominates the rifle market uh, in the country right now. It's very uh, popular weapon um, that has been fully embraced now by the gun industry, even though decades ago, you know, it was literally invented as a military weapon. Um, and the gun industry did not see it as a consumer, um, as really a, a, a consumer product that was likely to be successful. But now, not only is it incredibly popular, but it's a political symbol. Um, and it, the silhouette of the AR-15 is on hats and shirts. It's uh, embraced by um, extremists, um, uh, extremist, uh, militant extremist movements, both in the far left and the far right. Um, and it's become a, a real point of uh, debate in Congress. Members of Congress wear AR-15 pins. Um, it itself has just become a symbol of this polarized uh, country that we all live in. Well, uh, Peter Walson, I, I thank you so much for, for coming on to talk about this. And I also want to thank you for doing this series. Um, it did really shed light on so many aspects of the AR-15, and and basically the force or the hold that it has on our country that I think a lot of our listeners um, would find very inform informative um, and maybe even surprising as parts of it were for me. Again, it's called American Icon, the Washington Post series. It was seven months or so in the making, and, and you can read it now. Peter Walston is Senior National Investigations Editor for the Washington Post. Thanks again. Thank you. We'll have more after the break. Stay with us, listeners. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the AR-15 this hour, inspired by a Washington Post series that takes a deep look at it called American Icon. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation with your thoughts, questions, or experiences with the AR-15 by emailing forum at kqed.org, finding us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum, giving us a call at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. How do you account for the AR-15? popularity. What are you learning about the AR-15 through our conversation with Peter Walston just a moment ago that's new to you or what is to come, which we'll we'll be talking about with Sylvia Foster-Frau, multiculturalism reporter for the Washington Post who contributed to the American Icon series. Her piece is about the survivors of the 2017 Sutherland Springs mass shooting in Texas called A Tragedy Without End. Sylvia, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Also, Mark Fullman is with us, National Affairs Editor for Mother Jones Magazine, also author of the book Trigger Points, Inside the Mission to Stop Mass Shootings in America. Mark, glad to have you on as well. Good morning. Glad to be with you. So, Sylvia, we were talking with Peter about so many different aspects of the AR-15. One of the things that you looked at, besides how uh, deadly Um, its mechanics can be, you looked at the injuries that the AR-15 can create. Can you talk a little bit about uh, that long trail of recovery for people who survived the 2017 Sutherland Springs mass shooting um, that you called a tragedy without end? Yeah, so we called it that for a reason. It was because it when I returned there, you know, more than five years after that community experienced their mass shooting, it was as if they were still experiencing it again and again, a constant kind of reminder, a constant struggle, pain, mental anguish, everything. And you're asking about the specifically the physical effects. And um, I mean, people are still completely broken, going to the doctors constantly, mounting medical bills, um, suffering from infertility, from lead toxicity. Um, People are in wheelchairs, um, having intestinal issues and using colostomy bags in leg stints, Um, having physical symptoms of the stressors of everyday life as people who are suffering from PTSD. So, you know, just imagine a whole community, right, that is still dealing with these lasting physical effects that can no longer have children that they had planned to have who are suffering from lead poisoning, right? Because as Peter mentioned, these bullets enter the body and they pulverize. And so there are literally little pieces of bullets still lodged in people's bodies that leach lead and cause a host of immune and other issues, including infertility to many of the survivors. Um, and so, you know, it's it really just shows, I think we as the media, white, we really focus on when a mass shooting happens, we get the facts, we tell the stories of the people who are lost. And then, especially at the national level, you have to move on, right, to the next mass shooting, sadly, the next tragedy. Um, but it, what it really, my piece really tried to illustrate is that 
for years on and maybe probably for the rest of their lives, right? Like these communities are still suffering from that physical trauma and reliving it again and again and again. And that's what, um, you know, when you imagine that replicate on a large scale, right, as more and more communities keep adding to the list, it paints a really frightening picture of what's happening to the people in this country. Yeah, I just want to share a little bit of of your writing. You write about Megan Workman, who's 25 years old. um, And you say multitudes of purple freckles dot Megan Workman's legs, arms, chest and cheekbone, tiny shards of metal from bullets and shrapnel that struck her as she worshipped in her church more than five years ago. And of course, the, the toxic lead has also made it so that she probably can't have a child, as you say. So again, that, that very long tale. Mark Fullman, Peter Walston was talking about how this was originally designed as a military combat rifle. And I was struck by learning that it was originally designed by a California-based small arms manufacturer named Armalite in the 50s, and that AR actually stands for Armalite Rifle, not not Assault Rifle. That's right. So, yeah, yeah, talk talk a little bit about its original uses, but then how it became something for civilians. Well, this is essentially a civilian version of a rifle that was developed for the battlefield, as you said, decades ago, by the Armalite uh, company and uh, was tested and wildly successful, um, deemed that way by the Pentagon and uh, in terms of its uh, lethality, its its ability to kill. Uh, the post, the excellent post series covers this as well, and it's been used in in every war uh, fought by America since. Um, I would say by the 1980s, 1990s, we started to see a real shift in gun culture led by the gun lobby, the National Rifle Association and gun companies working behind the scenes. And this is a critical part of the story that I think to this day is still underappreciated. We did some real digging into it at Mother Jones about seven years ago to look inside the industry. And there were very concerted efforts to really shift the marketing of these firearms to really appeal much more aggressively to an image of masculinity and and, um, military prowess and to get product placement in movies and video games. Um, And this was remarkably successful, I think, in, in terms of building the market for these kinds of weapons. Yeah, I'm curious why they were unappealing initially to people. And and why the gun industry needed something to really boost its sales? Well, the culture of guns in America used to be much more about hunting with with bolt action rifles and shotguns and a culture of responsibility. This was actually promoted at great length by the NRA. Um, I, I mentioned this, in fact, in the opening of my book, Trigger Points, that I grew up shooting guns in the Midwest, trap shooting and, and riflery, target shooting for sport. And I loved it. And it was... A, a real sense of of responsibility, uh, safety was paramount. Um, these these factors that were emphasized by the gun culture kind of went away. But I think that back in the day, a rifle like the AR-15, which it, in the military version was was the M-16, was would be seen as a weapon of war, as as a killing machine. And so I don't think it had appeal in that way um, back then. But it sounds like gun sales were sort of flat, especially in the early aughts. And so the AR-15, they were starting to see that it had, I guess, this appeal. And as you say, that the marketing was very deliberate, purposeful, and sustained. I'm struck by your description of it in video games. 
Yeah, and, and uh, uh, hats off to the post in advancing that story with their their new excellent series. You know, we've known for a long time that that there was product placement in video games and, and movies. And one detail that really stood out to me from that reporting was that there was a close collaboration on these wildly popular first person shooter games. The, one of the most known is Call of Duty. Um, a very, you know, kind of realistic, graphically violent game uh, where the gun industry worked very closely with the developers of that game to capture the the real audio sounds of these weapons firing, including AR-15s. Uh, it's just one of many examples of how uh, marketing appeals to um you know, uh, kind of machismo and, and and masculine prowess was really carried out by the industry at great length over the years and especially uh, aimed at capturing the attention of, of young potential buyers. Well, let me go to caller Rob in San Francisco. Hi, Rob, you're on. Thank you. Um, yeah, the guy that just made those points is is so right on. I, um, I own guns. I am not a gun nut, but I, I enjoy shooting a shotgun at clay pigeons and doing a little target practice. And a couple of my friends have AR-15s and I've shot them and they're fun. But I think they're unnecessary, especially when they kill so many people so easily and destroy people's bodies so much more. But the marketing thing is what he's really onto, which is it, it's such a moddable gun. You can buy accessories for them. You can mix and match parts. It's kind of like buying a, a four-wheel drive truck and putting a lift kit on it and big tires so that you look cool. They just are a cool, macho kind of a gun that, you know, anybody in their right mind doesn't need for defense because if you have someone to break into your house and you shoot them with an AR-15 and you miss, you're going to put a bullet through like three or four other houses and possibly kill other people, whereas my shotgun, um, I'm less, less likely to miss, first of all, and second of all, uh, to hurt anybody else outside of my home. Um, and, uh, yeah, these things just, it's like the guy said, it's, it's just marketing, um, the cool factor. Um, and it's just, it's going to be hard to get them off the street because they have just really dug into our culture. Well, well, Rob, thanks for that point. And there's another enthusiast, Gary, who writes the exceptional ergonomics, reliability, low recoil, flat trajectory, make shooting the AR-15 a fun and enjoyable target shooting experience. Its modular design allows the hobbyists an opportunity to tune and customize the rifle to their liking, is also what makes this platform so popular. The fact that very, very few AR owners abuse the platform is not a reason for an outright ban on this firearm. I do support universal background checks and trying to keep any firearm out of the hands of those who should not have them. So so fine, uh, Mark. They're fun to shoot. They, they've got all these exceptional uh, qualities, as as Gary says, but why are they so often used in mass shootings? Is this part of why? Uh, what have you learned through your decade of research into mass shootings? Yeah, well, I, I'll just start by addressing uh, uh, the sort of the end of that that last comment, which I think is a really important point that dovetails with your question, Mina. The the politics of this are really, in a way, I think, disconnected from the reality of the guns themselves and from the problems we see from them, which have escalated in this context of mass shootings. Um, and that's to say that, you know, the, the political debate is always framed or so often framed as all or nothing, right? To ban all these guns, to get rid of them. But in fact, there's there, or to have at the other end, of course, no regulations at all, or just a free for all. Anyone can get these anywhere. 
Um, we're much closer to that. And there are consequences from that. Uh, Peter pointed out at the top of the hour that, you know, the vast majority of these weapons are used lawfully by law abiding gun owners. And that's important to recognize. And yet this is really escalated as part of the mass shootings problem. And that's what I've found in my research into mass shootings over the past decade. There have been 35 mass shootings in the past decade using AR-15s since 2012, the year of the Sandy Hook massacre and the massacre in the movie theater in Colorado. Um, there have been six of these in the past 10 months alone. So this is an accelerating trend. Uh, those six starting with Buffalo, Uvalde, uh, Tulsa, Highland Park, Colorado Springs, and now Nashville. So the question is, what is this about, right? And it does speak to the problem of mass shootings. Um, there is a very well understood behavior among mass shooters, among many, uh, which I studied for my book, Trigger Points, is about the, the method of threat assessment, which seeks to prevent these attacks by identifying warning signs. And there's a significant one that's referred to as identification behavior. This is known more commonly as the copycat problem. In other words, we see more and more mass shooters, especially young, troubled people who are drawn to these weapons who are looking to their predecessors, previous attackers, and seeing what they use and seeing what they do and wanting to be like them, identifying with them. This also involves body armor and tactical gear. Um, so this is a way in which AR-15s are a growing part of the mass shootings problem. And I think we really need to pay attention to that, to what the case evidence and what the data are telling us. Well, Anita writes, I have long believed that if the general public could see the damage done to the bodies, especially the tiny bodies, AR-15s would be banned. We should draw inspiration from Emmett Till's mother and show the photos. I know that's a horrific thought, and it makes me weep just to type it, but it would ultimately save lives. Sylvia, is that, uh, you, you describe what happened uh, in Sutherland Springs, you describe the injuries that the survivors are living with. Um, but is that something that you think should happen, that that actually the images should be shown? This was definitely a debate that also uh, had some salience after Uvalde. Um, how do you feel about that? Yeah, it's it's been a really... Um important question and one that as a newsroom, we've talked a lot about like the, the body impact piece that you mentioned earlier, like sought to kind of get at that, right. To get at um, getting closer to making people kind of have to not look away from the effects of the, these AR-15 style weapons and the damage that mass shootings um, can do. But I, I do want to note, you know, in my reporting on Sutherland Springs and these people that have been so, intimately and directly impacted many of these survivors are not in favor of strengthening and restricting gun laws in this country mm -hmm. and many of them have bought air 15 style guns since then or had them before and have kept them and um, the church has actually now has a security team with armed people one of the great ironies kind of was that though this community um has long been kind of a very pro gun and second amendment um, at the church itself during the time of the shooting, uh, the parishioners were not armed. And so it has actually triggered the response to arm themselves more and to create a security team 
And so you see, you know, even folks who are the most intimately affected, right, who are literally experiencing and suffering from um, these injuries have uh, different opinions than, say, you know, how the community in Parkland, Florida responded um, very vocally, right, um, when they experienced their mass shooting. So you, you really see how people's beliefs and ideologies shape their responses and the solutions they perceive to this, what is clearly a problem of mass yeah. shootings and increased harm in the country. Such a fascinating point. So the havoc they wreak could all, also inspire people to feel a need to protect themselves or believe that they're protecting themselves by owning um, a rifle. I also want to get your reaction to Susan Silvia, who writes, the events you talk about with gun deaths are much appreciated, but please, rather than use the term tragedies, use the word murders. They become tragedies, of course, but they are first murders, and I think may get people's attention in part because the word tragedies is so common these days. As someone who works in words, as someone whose piece is called a tragedy without end, what do you think about what Susan is saying? Oh, that's a really interesting point. I do think murder seems to be a more active word, right? Like it implies that someone is doing something to someone. Um, but you also have to tread the line, right? We, we've moved away from calling people who've survived shootings as still victims, right? We call them survivors now. Mm -hmm. And so I think tragedy also tries to uplift that these people, it, it's a focus on the people who were affected, right? That who experienced this, this tragedy, this who were, you know, had family members who were murdered, but have since kind of found agency and are trying to work through their lives. I, I think it is something obviously worth thinking about when we choose to use those terms and where we're putting agency, right, and blame for talking about these complicated issues. Again, Sylvia Foster-Frau's multiculturalism reporter for The Washington Post, who contributed to the American Icon series and her piece on the 2017 Sutherland Springs mass shooting is called A Tragedy Without End. Mark Volman is national affairs editor for Mother Jones magazine. Um, and also, Sylvia, really quickly, I know there has been a recent uh, settlement in the Sutherland Springs case with the federal government. Do you just want to update us quickly on that? It just happened yesterday, right? Yeah, so there's been a tentative agreement for $144 million settlement um, for the community. It's it's a lot less than the community had um, originally been asking for. And the, the suit with the government is basically because um, the Air Force had failed to report um, information about the gunman that would have prevented him from being able to buy those guns. Um, and so they re just received some money. Um, it, it's not as much as they had hoped for. It probably will end up being, uh, depending on kind of the algebra, less than a million dollars per person. Um, and it, it could stand to help, though. You know, this this community, many of them still live in mobile homes and are still kind of struggling with living in accessible places for their disabilities. And so this could really help give them a chance to um, update their living situations based on their current disabilities and uh, struggles that they're going through. We're talking about the AR-15, and we'll have more after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. The AR-15 is the best-selling rifle in the U.S. It's also been used in the deadliest recent mass shootings. We're making sense of this this hour with Mark Fullman, National Affairs Editor at Mother Jones Magazine, Sylvia Foster-Frau, Multiculturalism Reporter for The Washington Post, and with you, our listeners, um, who are sharing your thoughts, experiences with the AR-15, your thoughts on why it's popular, your thoughts on whether you think it needs to be regulated or banned. We're hearing that as well. Or your reactions to what you're learning through this conversation at 866-733-6786. You can post thoughts also at KQED Forum on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, or email us, forum at kqed.org. We're getting a lot, so let me go straight to Sean in Santa Clara, who's on the line. Hi, Sean. You're on. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, I'm a combat Marine Corps veteran, and I have a very particular viewpoint on this. I am a gun owner, and I am a firm believer in the Second Amendment. However, that said, I think civilians should absolutely not own semi-automatic weapons in America. One of the primary reasons why I believe this is due to training. It's Mm -hmm. easier to get an AR-15 in this country than it is to get a driver's license. The training that's required when you purchase one of these weapons uh, is, is a joke as far as I can see. Uh, you know, in the Marine Corps and, and the other armed forces, we are highly, highly trained in the use of these weapons. We're not allowed to carry them around the base and do open carry. We, they are locked up and reserved. They are highly regulated. In the United States, I just do not see how there's any regulation at all when it come, concerns these weapons as far as training and the owning of these weapons. Hmm. Uh, outside of law enforcement and the military, I think there should be an outright ban on, on semi-automatic weapons in this country. All right, Sean. Well, thanks so much for sharing your view of this. Uh, let me go to Andrew in Monterey next. Hi, Andrew. Thanks for waiting. You're on. Hi. So I'm one of the uh, Americans who owns at least one AR-15. And I think we often hear, hear the term weapon of war and that they shouldn't be in civilian hands. Distinctions are made between military weapons and civilian weapons, but this overlooks the point of the Second Amendment and the American spirit. Although hunting and sports shooting are deeply ingrained in American culture, the Second Amendment is not about hunting or sports shooting. It is explicitly about the right to keep and bear weapons of war. And uh, if we look at most of American history, starting with its founding, most of the advancements in weaponry were made in private hands, and the military followed their lead. Hmm. So the AR-15 is effective and deadly, make no mistake, but... um, For most of the 20th century, anyone could mail order a fully automatic machine gun straight to their door with no background check. And we also hear stories of our parents and grandparents bringing their rifles and shotguns to school in their trucks and lockers. AR-15 has been around since like 
1950s, 1960s, yet these mass shootings seem a very common, recent occurrence. So what changed? Well, Andrew, thanks for registering your view on that. Um, Mark, I don't know if you have any quick reactions to what you heard from either Sean or Andrew, who I think reflect different views. Yeah, and I think they both made some important points. Um, I would say that they also their comments do reflect what I was alluding to earlier, which is that this this political debate we're stuck in nationally for so long, that's so entrenched, it, it in some ways it does not acknowledge any middle ground. Um, the idea that either people could have these or not have these, they're all going to be banned or that they're not going to be regulated at all. There's a whole lot that can happen in between. And I think the first caller, Sean's point about training is an important one. Um, There are no requirements to own this highly lethal weapon that is now ubiquitous and very easy to get in many places. And so is that something that we should be addressing more realistically, I think is a very important question. Um, You know, to the point you're making about training, there's, there's surveillance footage of the Uvalde perpetrator getting his gun in a store, one of his AR-15s in a, in a gun shop and immediately pulling the trigger in the shop to test it out. That is something that a trained firearm owner would never, ever do. Mm. So, you know, there, there's a lot we can think about here that isn't just about ban all guns or just have them available freely for anyone under the Second Amendment. Well, Amy tweets, is there any reporting on how police feel about civilians having these weapons and the relatively easy access to firearms in the U.S.? Mark, you've looked at this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've talked to many people in law enforcement in my work over the years on this issue, and the most, I would say, are are very uh, troubled by the massive firepower available on the streets of the United States. It makes their job much harder. Um, we have a lot of trouble with police shootings, too. Well, think about it from the perspective of police officers who go out every day with the expectation that anyone could be armed at any time. Well, we'll talk about Uvalde. I mean, yeah. what you discovered about that and the police response. Right. And uh, really striking reporting from the Texas Tribune on this recently, um, that there were a number of uh, police in that catastrophic failed response to the shooting there, that, you know, waiting more than an hour to go into the classroom finally and, and take out the shooter. They were directly fearful of his AR-15. They knew he had one and they felt outgunned and afraid. Uh, so this had enormous implications for the response there, the failed response there. And I think that's a significant impact from this weapon that we don't talk about very often um, in, in the country when we see these mass shootings. What I find so interesting is also you talk about how lawmakers or others really tried to bury that reality in the aftermath or or in learning about it. Can you just share a little bit about how that probably also contributes to the lack of anything happening politically from our elected leaders? Right. Well, this is also extraordinary. I think about that story. There was a, a roughly 80 page report, an investigation put out by the Texas state legislature um, that went deep into the, the failed response of law enforcement in Uvalde, uh, did not mention a single word about these multiple interviews uh, with law enforcement, with police who were fearful about the weapon. So apparently they were trying to bury that uh, fact, but it's an important one, right? When you think about the tactical response of police who are trained ever since Columbine, more than two decades ago, to respond to an active shooting by immediately going in and confronting the shooter, which obviously did not happen to devastating effect in Uvalde. And the presence of this firearm was was part of the reason why. So that's really important. Then we see politicians in Texas say, you know, 
it's not the guns. Or we see after Nashville, a congressman from Tennessee say, there's nothing we can do about this. We're not going to fix it. Um, this is a remarkable expression, I think, of the polarized politics uh, that you know don't really reflect the reality of this problem, the facts of the problem. And to be frank, has been a great tool of distraction for right-wing Republicans for a long time. They've exploited it very skillfully as, as a wedge issue, a cultural wedge issue, to just simply say, you know, everyone's coming for your guns. They're going to take your guns away and not address what's really happening in, in these massacres. Well, Sylvia, you were talking about how even in communities directly affected by mass shootings, we don't necessarily see a push for more restrictions or people shying away from owning them. Um, You recently reported on the reaction to the Nashville shooting, which I was really struck by. Can you talk a little bit about some of the nuances you were finding there? Well, some of the reactions and then, yeah, some of the nuances in that. Yeah, one of the kind of things I was looking at was how Christianity in this, um, the Covenant School, you know, which was owned by a Presbyterian church and a religious school, kind of how Christianity was informing um, the responses to the shooting and the solutions, right? And you really saw the community kind of split with some voices saying that um, the community needed to just pray and be there in spirit and to mentally kind of support and give focus and attention to the victims. And then folks who were basically saying that prayer and their own religion was being used as a dampener dampener and a silencer to actually make change to prevent these kinds of tragedies um, from happening in their communities again. And it it was just really fascinating to kind of look at the way, like through the lens of religion, right? And, And the ties between religious, white religious um, evangelical culture and gun culture um, informed the conversation there. And um, it, it, you really saw it too, like even the governor, right, in the second day after the shooting, um, he gave an address and he basically just told folks that we needed to pray and that, that there was evil um, and that the root and the cause of this was evil, right? And so some of the, the religious leaders in Nashville itself were saying, you know, that he was speaking more as a pastor and less as a a member of government that could actually do something right to make change in the community. And I, I just kind of found the the cultural relationship between religion and guns really interesting and in how it was playing out in that city. Hmm. Let me go to caller Dylan in Oakland. Hi, Dylan. You're on. Hi, um, thank you so much for this conversation today. Um, yeah, I'm curious about the issue of the numbers here, because as much as we can talk about how this debate has been polarized, sometimes I think it obscures the the issue of just sort of like common sense morality. It seems that every now and again we see a poll that says 80%, 90% of Americans are opposed to civilian ownership of these types of rifles. And that I would imagine even among gun enthusiasts, AR-15 owners are are not a majority. So I'm wondering, like, what what are the strategies here when you're dealing with a a, a vocal, um, well armed and well lobbied minority um, to sort of bring things back to a place of this is what the people understand? It reminds me really of the situation. Uh, with the Vietnam War in the late 60s and 70s when you had 80, 90% of the population opposed to that war, but 
a representative democracy that wasn't representing its constituents. Dylan, thanks. Mark Fullman, I'm sure you have some thoughts on what Dylan's saying. Well, one thing I would say, uh, you know, a, a, a kind of core theme in, in my book is I've come to think that we really need to work to demystify this problem in some ways, this problem of mass shootings and gun violence. Um, so much of the political debate that, you know, goes directly to all of this polling and, and public opinion uh, regards this problem as evil. I think, you know, I'm struck by what Sylvia described from her reporting in the, the Christian community in Nashville, the notion that this is pure evil or insanity. I mean, for many years, we've talked about uh, mass shooters snapping as if they're cr- all crazy and acting impulsively, which isn't true when you look at the reality of the case evidence. Um, so I think there's a lot that we can do to demystify the nature of this problem by understanding it better. Who are the people who are going out and committing these crimes? What weapons and gear are they mm. using? How are they getting to the point of attacking? Why are they attacking? When we look at that more, I think it helps us start to begin to get beyond this very stuck political fight we have in the country and these narratives that in some ways don't reflect the reality of what we're up against. Right. Like threat assessment, as you talk about in your book, um, and actually seeing if they're interested in AR-15s in combination with some other signs as being a sign to be wary of and to have somebody be assessed for whatever threat they could be as a potential mass shooter, taking it out of the realm of the politics that, that right. I and, think and Dylan describes. Just yeah. Be, just be, yeah, just to be clear about that too, you know, someone's interest in AR-15s in and of itself says nothing. The vast right. majority people as we've acknowledged are would be you know normal law abiding law abiding gun owners but when a person is giving off disturbing warning signs and people are getting nervous and worried about them and they're also taking an interest in AR15s then you start to ask the question what's going on here that's an important part of the prevention work and it speaks to how we regulate these firearms or the lack thereof um, in terms of th- this problem of mass shootings you are listening to Forum. Let me remind listeners. I'm Mina Kim. Oh, we've got some listeners with other thoughts. Frank writes, it's insane that because of America's unique campaign finance system, one of our two major parties, the Republicans are literally on the gun industry's payroll. This is unique to every other developed nation on this planet. Paul writes, I'd like to ask Speaker McCarthy whether I can bring an AR-15 into the House gallery. And if not, as I suspect, why not if more guns make us safer? Another listener writes, is there any research on how many gun owners have actually used their AR-15 in self-defense? I don't know if you have an answer for that, Mark. Um, I, I don't know specifically about AR-15s, but self-defensive use of guns is a controversial research topic. There is not a whole lot of clear evidence about how much that happens or how effective it is. Um, it's another point of polarized debate, and it's used and kind of exploited in in the the semantical arguments you see around guns and, and gun violence. But um, there there is no, I'm not aware of any specific study of the use of AR-15s for self-defense. Another listener writes, what are the economics of AR-15s? How much profit is seen by manufacturers? Do you have some numbers on that, Mark? Um, not offhand. I would refer folks to the the, the great Washington Post investigation. Uh, one thing that they did show there in terms of numbers was that there are approximately 20 million of these guns circulating now in the country and that roughly 14 million of those guns were uh, manufactured just in the past decade. So uh, this has uh, been an $11 billion of revenue generated over that decade. So that gives you some sense of the growth of the gun industry specifically around this weapon. 
Jesse writes, my brother lives in St. Louis. He owns an AR-15 for sport at the shooting range. He loves target practice. He says that he'll fight a ban because it gives him pleasure. Perhaps just having licensed ranges for sport would be an arrangement by the feds. It's interesting that everybody keeps bringing up bans. I don't know that right. the, the ban is really what, the so, level that people are talking about it here. That's right. Part of what I've been trying to say, no one is proposing a ban. I mean, sure, that idea is out there and it's part, it's a big part of the political debate, but I, I'm not aware of any legislation that's been put forth anytime recently to outright ban AR-15s. There are so many other regulatory tools on the table, background checks, extreme risk protection orders, uh, known as red flag laws. I think another potentially very effective law um, that dovetails with threat assessment work to, you know, every time a mass shooting happens, we hear these calls for just keep the guns out of dangerous people's hands. I mean, this is a talking point for conservative Republicans for many years. Well, this is a law designed to do exactly that. It, it may have applied in Nashville. We know that the parents of that perpetrator were very concerned and didn't want their child owning firearms. If there had been a red flag law in Tennessee, which there isn't, they might have been able to approach the authorities and say, could you please make sure that this that our child cannot own firearms or have them. So we're not talking just about banning all guns, which I don't think speaks to the, the reality of, of the regulatory ideas on the table. Especially not on the and, federal level. So go ahead, Sylvia. No, yeah, I just wanted to add, like in my reporting and experience, I, I think one of the issues that we get caught up in like, is the language and the buzzwords associated with these kind of polarized sides of a political debate, when really the majority of the population is a lot closer in opinion as to these kind of incremental things that we could do to make change, whether it is like the red flag laws or raising ages or increasing training. You know, most folks who use guns like are in favor of having people trained to use them and NRA instructors, you know, are great examples of that, of people who are actually trained to use and handle and safely take care of their guns, right? That I think anyone would want to have. If you're going to have a gun, they would want you to be trained for that. Yeah. So it really is like an issue of language. And I just wanted to add one more thing too, which is um, part of the conversation about all of this um, should probably include high capacity magazines and their ability um, to really fire so rapidly in so many rounds. And one of the kind of other proposed solutions in our series is taking a look at um, maybe restricting um, smaller magazine sizes that would force, you know, if there was a, a mass shooting with a gunman again, which I'm sure there will be, it forces reloading, right? Instead of these like 100 round magazines that just um, can really cause so much damage. Yeah. You know, I, I just, we, we're running out of time, but I did have one thought. And by the way, a lot of our listeners' comments are reflecting that middle ground that you both talk about, which is really nice to see. The the fact that it seems like the more attention the AR-15 gets, the more people want it or, or post-tragedy or any political questions makes people buy it more. I just was wondering, Sylvia, if that was a question concern among Washington Post folks about this series drawing more attention to it could also have that effect? I mean, we just have 10 seconds. I think, yes, that was definitely a conversation we had is to take care that you're not simultaneously glorifying something that you're yeah. criticizing, right? And uplifting imagery yes. and language that can... Um, and I hope this discussion helped show uh, that there are good reasons to focus on it. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, 
the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.